Good morning. It's Saturday, January 16th, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. I'm Michael Haney, a deputy editor here at Airmail. Welcome to the show. Oh, Michael. Hi, Ashley. I was just going to say, it's great to be back with you on a Saturday morning in a small pocket of sanity in this otherwise untethered world. That makes me feel good, and I hope it makes everyone else. Yes, it's a, it is a small pocket of sanity. I, I get to at least hear you when I wake up today and I'm spinning out of control, I think at least I'm going to hear Ashley's voice today. So thank you. I want to give a shout out to, we got a lot of great notes from many of our listeners on social media last week. We want to thank you all for listening. We especially want to thank the lovely couple in London that listens to us while cleaning their apartment. Way to multitask guys. It's been really fun to hear from everyone and it's a great way for all of us to stay connected. I personally feel like I'm living at least 15% in London in my mind these days, <laughs> which is a nice place to be, Michael. I think we all need those sort of um, Zen visualizations. And if London is one of yours, you know, but you would be in lockdown anyway, but I guess you would be able or maybe a, you can go there and imagine you're walking empty streets. Yeah, walking empty streets, walking through Hyde Park, going by the airmail newsstand, you know, maybe popping into, uh, you know... St. John, bread and wine. I don't know. These are just a couple fantasies I have. I'm dying to get back. Well, on that note, we have four days till the inauguration of a new administration. Thank goodness. Not a minute too soon. 96 hours. Ooh, nice math. Not one of my strong suits, but I was able to figure it out this week. (laughs) Well, Michael, we've got one heck of a show today. Uh, We're going to talk about the politics and all of that. Okay, we just will. But we also have got some good scandal for you. In the name of Gordon Ramsay and all the drama with his family, we're going to revisit grifters I have known, Anna Delvey, the fake heiress who's really the daughter of a Russian lorry driver who was imprisoned for a $275,000 grifting scheme. She's getting out of jail. She's going to be on Netflix in a new fictionalized drama about her life. Uh, We'll talk about some great lives, Michael. Sir Brian and Lady Urquhart, who passed away. We're going to, one of our writers, George Kaladrakis, has revisited uh, their incredible legacy. And and then, you know, we have a special guest today. The esteemed, but yet also inestimable Barry Blitt, who won the Pulitzer Prize for editorial cartooning in May of last year. And he has entertained and enchanted New Yorker and airmail audiences for a very long time. And we're thrilled to have him on to talk about what it's like to be an editorial cartoonist during the Trump years and what he has next in store for the Biden years. Where shall we start? How about we start with the fact that Donald Trump is not the only foul-mouthed, fake blonde associated with naughty legal problems these days? Boris Johnson? No, I'm talking about Gordon Ramsay in London. The guy's a jerk. Like, what else, what else do I need to know? Well, as Joseph Bulmore, who is our, one of our correspondents in London, writes in this week's issue, there is this kind of rolling psychodrama that is brand Ramsay right now, which is, it, it features flagrant father, fathers-in-law, falsified finances, federal foibles, and family feuds. And it's sort of at the center of it all is Chris Hutchison, who is the father of Ramsay's wife, Tana. And he he filed for bankruptcy a few years ago. He was he was um, also ran helped run Gordon's business. And it came out in 2011, about 10 years ago, that it emerged that Hutchison had for decades maintained a second family, entirely unbeknownst to his wife and Gordon, as well as Gordon's uh, wife uh, wife and and uh, daughter of Hutchison. So he had raised with his mistress 
Francis Collins, he had raised two children who were at that time in their late 20s, early 30s, and their existence came to light only when Ramsey hired private investigators to look into the company's finances following Hutchison's departure. So how's that for, uh, for an appetizer? It's pretty delicious, Michael. It is pretty delicious. You know, I always love a story of a hidden second family. It's like, how do these people manage to pull this off? I can barely deal with having one family. Love you guys, but still. I mean, much less trying to, I mean, wouldn't that be your entire life? Just trying to manage two separate sets of people and keep them secret from one another? I know most people are trying to, you know, sort of minimize their sort of family problems. and, and Well, thank goodness these guys are keeping us entertained with their fairly petty squabbles and dramas. Speaking of people that entertain us to no end, Anna Delvey, Michael. Do you remember this woman? Of course. she's. I mean, I came to her to get to know about her because I know she's one of your favorite obsessions, right? Can't help you it. Love, you love a female grifter. You know, Michael and I were having an offline conversation yesterday about grifters we have known. There are so many. We're not going to mention names, but like, it was like, it reminded me of like when I was a kid and I would trade baseball cards, you know, and be like, you got this one? Yeah, I got that one. How about this one? And you and I were just dropping names of certain people we have known across the decades in New York City who were like, oh, total grifter, total fraud, right? Totally. I mean, in especially like before the advent of social media, let's just say in, in the aughts, it was very easy to invent a fake identity for yourself and, you know, show up at Lotus or Bungalow 8 or later on the Beatrice Inn and, you know, sort of create a persona around yourself. I was recently at the uh, Standard Hotel over the holidays and I went, you know, remember when the top of the Standard, which used to be called the Boom Boom Room, was like the hottest place in New York? I'm under the boom boom room. That place, I, I, I was cool once. I hung out there. That place was like, you know, the nexus of all all grifters in New York. It, it's a beautiful room, but um, and it was such a cool place. But I sort of missed those days because, you know, this to me, this this story of Anna Sorokin, who went by Anna Delvey, is something that couldn't be replicated today because of social media. It's just too easy to trace these people. But in brief, here's who she was. She's the daughter of a Russian lorry driver. She's now 29 years old, but uh, she came onto the scene, you know, 2013, 2014, something like that. And she pretended like she was an heiress and she spent thousands of dollars on a wardrobe and she was dining and dashing at, you know, the chicest restaurants in New York. She was just an absolute con artist. She fooled a private jet company into flying her to Warren Buffett's conference in Nebraska. Anyway, she was ultimately caught and arrested, and she's now the subject of a Netflix drama called Inventing Anna, uh, which was based on a 2018 article in New York Magazine by Jessica Pressler. And Jessica's always blowing these stories out of the water. You know, she, she did the Hustlers story, which became obviously the film we know and love. And this is another one of her masterworks. But anyway, so Anna Delvey is now getting out of jail. Uh, she's coming out with $100,000, in fact, because of this Netflix deal. Um, but she does have to use that fee to pay back her victims. And, you know, this is we just have a funny piece about sort of revisiting where she came from and where she's going and and delusionally. And she reminds me of Trump in this way, Michael, like the kind of sociopath quality. She says, you know, the thing is, I'm not sorry. I'd be lying to you and to everyone else and to myself if I said I was sorry for anything, like completely unrepentant. Right. I feel like I heard that this week from, yeah, from from many people. I think you did. But among her more egregious behaviors is she tried to launch the Anna Delvey Foundation, which was a $40 million members-only arts club on Park Avenue South. And she tried to get a $22 million bank loan. Uh, 
It was insane. I mean, she had 73,000 followers on Instagram and she still has this like very ardent fan base of people who, you know, believe her lies and and believe in this mythology she's created. As Cindy Adams would say, Michael, only in New York kids. What Anna sort of values, like she should, she should become the kind of a female version of that guy, Frank, uh, Abengale, I think his name was in Catch Me If You Can, the Leo DiCaprio movie, which is like showing the feds how to, it's like mind hunter. Like how do you, how do you profile grifters like this? And, and how do you catch them? New television show, Michael, how to catch a grifter. <laughs> Let's pitch it. Come on. Good. Let's call CAA. So I understand you've got a good, great lives for us this week. Yeah, I think this is, this is one that's sort of, um, close to the airmail family. And yet it is in the swirl of all the duplicitous, terrible behavior that we talk about in the scandal. I think this one, which is about Sir Brian Urquhart and his wife, Lady Urquhart, uh, Sydney, is a story that I like to think about is represents the best of the greatest generation, which is, is they, they were married 57 years. They both died about two weeks ago, within a day of each other. Brian was 101 and Sydney was 87. I mean, was this guy like the most accomplished thinkers and, you know, politician types of his generation, right? He was. He, and, he, and, and he represented that, that people who live their life for service. He was born in modest means in the UK. His father left the family when he was very young. He ended up being put into a school, uh, he was the only boy in a girl's school, uh, his mother, and he joined the war in World War II, came out of that, and he was employee number two at the United Nations when the United Nations was founded. He was the second person hired there, and he spent his whole life in service to the United Nations where he basically came up with the idea for peacekeeping forces. The guys with the blue helmets who put their, who go around the world into hot zones and maintain peace and truces and warring factions. That was Sir Brian's idea and his initiative. And it culminated with when the uh, peacekeeping forces won the Nobel Prize uh, back in the 80s. It was all because of Sir Brian's vision. Uh, So tremendous accomplishment, tremendous legacy and and gift that he left the world. There's also the love story uh, with Sir Brian and Sidney, which as George Kaldrakis, uh, our writer at large, Writes and George has a very personal attachment to Brian and Sydney. He was for many years their son-in-law, and his wife Rachel was. Uh, and Rachel and Brian George met at Spy back in the day when I was there, and so it's a beautiful kind of remembrance. And what a beautiful tribute it is. I mean, Sydney was very accomplished. She was came from a, a very different family than. Sir Brian's. She was the daughter of the playwright and screenwriter Sidney Howard, who wrote the screenplay for Gone with the Wind, won the Oscar for it. And she was the granddaughter of the conductor, Walter Damrush, who brought George Gershwin to Carnegie Hall. She was photographed by Richard Avedon. She was her own force in, in Manhattan. She worked for many years at Time Magazine. Uh, and together, they were sort of these pillars of New York society and, as I said, sort of what it means to be the greatest generation. I think at, at the core, at the root, as George says, they were a couple and uh, their mutual love and devotion was absolute. And I think that's the part of this great lives in this week's issue that sort of will leave you sort of choked up. And I think seeing 
two lives come together for 57 years, touching some so many other lives around the world in war zones, as well as dinner tables. And there's this scene that George talks about how every dinner with them was great and they would do it over plonk, never any fancy wine. And as George sort of says, you know, the there's something so poetic that they both chose to, as P.G. Wodehouse might say, fall off the perch at the same time. It's heartbreaking, but it's also beautiful. And it's a beautiful remembrance in this week's issue. Well, thank you very much. So, Michael, we're, we're very fortunate today. We have the one, the only Barry Blit with us to talk about, well, all manner of things. But we're going to start, Barry, this is interesting timing for you because this is the last few days of the Trump administration. And uh, you have entertained and enchanted us so much throughout the past four years with your drawings of Trump. What's going on in your world right now? I mean, I have sketchbooks crammed with really pointless Trump ideas that I'm trying to somehow finish and, and publish or you know, just at least get them out of my life. And I find I can't draw him anymore. You know, I, I can't I can't tell what he looks like. I'm like it's way too close to his face. So, I mean, it's yeah, it's a very disturbing time overall, but I, I'll, I'll be very happy when it's when it's when it's over and I don't have to deal with that anymore. It's a combination of fire sale and withdrawal at the same time, right? Yeah, life is a combination of fire sale and withdrawal, I find. <laughs> Sorry, I was, what a stupid thing to say. <laughs> I haven't talked to anybody in weeks, you know. <laughs> well, thank you for making the time for us. Sure. Barry, um, you just finished a New Yorker cover. This is coming out on Saturday. Will it be out by then? We never say we finished one. I mean, I don't know. You probably just jinxed it, but I did just work on something. It's all right. It'll come out. I'm not sure when it will come out. Sometimes they release them early, like the week before online. And uh, I don't know. You know, I send out you know, bits of drawings that they sometimes put together and, and desperate splashes of watercolor. And we'll, we'll see if it, uh, if it looks like anything and if it's used. Barry, I want to know, what was it like to get that call from the Pulitzer people? Yeah, it was staggering and I'm still getting over it. It was May 3rd. Did it change your life much? Did it change my, I, it muted my self-hatred for a few days, but you know, that's, uh, I'm back to full throttle there. You know, it's, it's a, it's very unexpected and, and it's a lovely thing. I, I haven't, I, I can't describe it. I don't know. It's winning an award. I, you know, it's, it's nice, but life goes on. One of the things we love so much about your work and one of the reasons that Barry Blit is who he is, is because you respond and react so thoughtfully to the news through your art and you do so, so quickly. Can you give us a sense of what your creative process is like and how you manage to do all of this? I, I mean, it's scribbling in a sketchbook and trying to make myself laugh, I guess. And, and I guess it's, uh, I, I can't, I can't describe, you know, what the hell goes on. It happens quickly. And, and uh, I think if I get too self-reflective about it and try and describe it, I, I'll never be able to do it again. So it's some interior thing. <laughs> Sorry. It's, I, I, I really, I, I couldn't, I, can't you tell with all my stammering that I, I have no idea how to, how to answer this question. At least from me looking at your work, just as an observer and a Blit fan, it seems like you've gotten harder and harder and harder on Trump over the course of the past four years. How has your reaction to him changed and evolved or has it? I mean, I think I was entertained by him to start with. There's that video of him, at, is it at the Tony Awards? And he's singing Green Acres. Uh, and he used to have a sense of humor and he was, yeah, I mean, he was always kind of revolting, but he was sort of funny. And, and I think at the beginning it was 
there was some pleasure in, in, uh, you know, in, in riffing on him and doing a drawing of him, but it's, my feelings have hardened, you know, it's, I can't laugh at him at all anymore. And, and, uh, I don't feel that the, the work I've done about him, a lot of it's very, it's not honorable. He's a bully. And, you know, when a bully walks into a room and starts insulting people, everyone's insulting each other back. And I feel like I've got caught up in that sort of thing. And, you know, as I said before, I'll be happy when this is over and I can tackle some, you know, I guess, higher minded targets or, or you know, or however to put that. It just, it seems to just become insulting and it's it's not fun it's boring after a while i mean michael doesn't it kind of surprise you to hear barry say that it's boring because your work i mean let's talk about one that you recently did for airmail yeah that was the one that we we just ran which i coming after the 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 riots of last week at the capitol where you um sort of riffed down the imagery from planet of the apes with rather than have the Statue of Liberty on the sand at Heston and the woman come across Nova, but instead it would be the Capitol Dome. And, you know, it was just, I think what so many of your drawings do so well is, I think, give context, they contextualize something and make, you know, how do you show it? How do you make people see it? Something that they've seen over and over like this riot and see it in a new light, right? I think that's part of the, um, the power of what, what your drawings do. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking for metaphors and I sort of have a, I guess, in sketchbooks and mentally, there's certain, you know, iconic images like that Planet of the Apes. I think I've always known I was going to use that somewhere. Just, it's just a matter of where. And you take note of things when they happen. You know, a, you know, the photograph of Oswald being shot by Jack Ruby. I mean, something like that. You could plug so many. I mean, I hate to, to break it down so it becomes a formula. And maybe that's why it was difficult to talk about the process. But often it is sort there is some formula to it. And you're, you're sometimes I'll rifle through a, a folder I have on my computer of metaphor of metaphoric images or, you know, iconic images. And something will hit you that, oh, this would definitely apply to what just happened. So it comes down to that often. One of your illustrations for us that went viral after the events at the Capitol last week was um, a drawing you did of Trump washing his hands in the sink and blood was running off of them. How did that idea come to you? Oh, geez. I think it was the washing your hands. Uh, It was the pandemic, you know, the COVID wash your hands. I think it started with that. And there's a lot of washing your hands around. And that's, again, you know, an image that's or a, a, a meme, you know, everyone's talking about washing their hands. I got Macbeth off of that. I wasn't even thinking about COVID. Oh, wow. So, she, you know. She gives you the high-minded literary. <laughs> so just take it, okay? I'll take it. Yeah, there's so many times when I, you know, I've drawn something and people tell me what it, you know, it means. There was a layer that I was had no idea about. And I have to, you know, pretend like, of course, that was in there from the beginning. But well, that's why your, draw, your drawings are like, they're... Rorschachs for people's, you know, how, how people choose to see. Rosetta Stone. Yeah, exactly. I, okay, I have an important question for you then. All right, Trump, you know, fingers crossed as of, you know, 96 hours from now will be towards the end of this thing. And you've already given us at Airmail, as again, I said, if you go to airmail.news, you've seen a nice, we're starting to see glimmers thanks to the campaign of what, well, how you see Joe Biden and, and, and the incoming administration. Two of my favorites that you've done for us so far is uh, Biden, of course, with the Mr. Rogers red sweater vest, standing with a uh, uh, Uncle Fester, Lindsey Graham next to him, which made me laugh. And then the other one, which it was, uh, I think, as, as, the camp, as the election drama, post-election drama, it was 
The caption was Joe Biden inches his way to the presidency. And you, of course, had him a uh, long staircase and him sort of waving and smiling merrily as he was coming down on one of those staircase escalators, right? Yeah, hopefully going up, but maybe coming down. Well, I thought maybe he was coming down to greet us, but I thought you saw coming up. So where are you when you when you look at Joe Biden, what do you see and what, what are you responding to when you start to draw him now nowadays? Well, aside from that cheap shot of me drawing him, you know, on a stair elevator. I know that I, I won't be looking at him and making fun of his hair or, you know, what he looks like. I am eager to try and draw some more substantive cartoons, but, you know, maybe they'll just be more boring. I'm surely they will be more boring. Everything will probably be more boring, but in a good way. But he'll be fun to draw. And, uh, and so will Kamala. Yeah, there's a little bit of Gerald Ford in Joe Biden, right? It's like it's like Gerald Ford after Nixon, right? You know, it's like where do you go from there, right? That's that's a cartoon right there. That's a great idea. That's that's funny. I'm gonna take that from you. <laughs> We're here to help, Barry. Well, that was that's good. It's true. My gift to you, sir. Uh, Barry, are are you? Am I correct in thinking that you're up in Connecticut? I am up in Connecticut. How is quarantine, lockdown life treating you? Quarantine is, it's its like it always is for me. I mean, I don't leave the house much to start with. I, you know, I'm, I'm working most of the time. So the last year has been no different from the last 40 years. It's been remarkable. Yeah, I'm sure as no different as it could be for somebody, you know, it's, it's been a good excuse for people not to come over and to have to go to their house. But it'll be nice to be, you know, it'll, it'll be nice when it's over for so many reasons. I'd also like to say, Barry, I think you're one of the most elegant men I know. <laughs> I know he looks so well attired over Zoom, Michael. I just, yeah, I should, I should live over Zoom. It's true. It's another reason why the pandemic, because it's, there's none of the usual disgust with which I'm greeted over Zoom. It seems to clear that up somehow. You're like, you're like the Charlie Watts of, 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 of cartoonists because all the, all the other guys, you sort of think they're like, got, you know, crumbs on their sweaters and everything. And like you show up in the airmail offices back when we went to the office, like you got your white linen jacket on, you look very summery. Now you- Did I have a white linen jacket on? Really? I believe you did. Michael and, remembers everything. Yeah, now look, you got your, your beautiful uh, uh, hat on there. I just walked in from the outside. I mean, I could take it off, but it would be alarming to you. Well, it's very, very, very chic. Very, 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 very handsome. No one shares your view, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Barry, we cannot wait to see you in person and properly toast your Pulitzer. Congratulations um, for that historic, fantastic achievement. So well-deserved. Thanks to both of you. That was fun to talk to you. Yeah, and uh, as I say, go to airmail.news and see a whole uh, Barry's whole archive with, Air, with Airmail. And um, we'll be able to see more of you in the next, next few weeks. Cheers. Michael, Barry Blitt is inspiring me to up my Zoom-style game. Yeah, right. I mean, it just looks so awesome, right? I mean, look, I wear earrings. I wear a nice blouse. I wear a jacket, but I haven't yet worn a hat unless it was to an airmail cocktail party, which that was a requirement for a certain period of time. You always look great on Zoom. <laughs> Thank you. But we should talk about this uh, story that Graydon sent to us, actually, from the Times of London. Is it really goodbye to high heels? Polly Vernon wrote a piece suggesting that stilettos are out and flats are in. And Polly asks, will the spike heel ever return? And what do you think about this, Michael? She also suggests that ties are done. Controversial. Yeah, uh, as Graydon said, his, his subject line was heels and ties, question mark. And I thought, I said, heels and ties, 
It sounds like a nightclub in, in New York City in the 1950s, or maybe it was a Debbie Reynolds, Rock Hudson romantic comedy, heels in ties about <laughs> guys doing wrong, right? But, You're so right, Michael. You're so right. I disagree. I mean, this is, you know, did you hear Anna Wintour's interview on Sway this week? I go out of my way to avoid listening to Anna Wintour. <laughs> okay, well, she was interviewed by Kara Swisher on Sway this week. And this is a point that Anna and I can agree upon, which is that uh, I do think people are going to be dressing very fancily coming out of lockdown. We've had enough of this, Michael. Fashion is performative. Uh, we need to get out on the streets and, and strut our stuff and wear fashionable things again. And I think it's interesting. There's been this trend in shoes over the last 10 years away from the spike heel towards, you know, towards flats, towards sneakers. We've seen, you know, with the Balenciaga Triple S and the abundance of loafers, very stylish and very expensive ones on the streets of New York. But I do think people are going to feel a cause for celebration when the world opens up again. And Michael, my Saturday night... Towards the end of 21, 2021, it's all, all going to be all about a dress, great heels, a fabulous bag, great jewelry. I'm going to go to a cocktail party. Then I'm going to go to the theater. Then I'm going to go to a late night dinner. And then I'm going to hit an after party. And I'm going to go to bed at 4 a.m. Because for the last year, I've been going to bed at 9 p.m. and doing nothing fun. This is like New York City 1952. It's like it's like all you're missing is like Copacabana and, and uh, Toot Shores. But I agree with you. It's like there's going to be so much pent up. You know, it's it'll be a lot of yearning. I think is this talk. I the, the interesting thing to me is the necktie part, right? Everyone's like, who's going to wear neckties anymore? Look, that was already kind of going away. But and, and I'm a guy who loves neckties. And as I said to Graydon in my note, I said even for the first few months, I used to wear a tie every day. I would wear. I still would wear one in the house, just as a way to sort of feel connected and not um, like I was uh, slowly drifting into slovenly territory. But I do think, look, in a world where I was saying is like, you know, where Ted Cruz has the has the stubble beard now and doesn't wear a necktie, you know what makes a necktie cool again is looking at a guy like that, looking at Joe Biden and all these guys. When you see politicians and, you know, uh, guys like that not wearing, not embracing a trend that's been happening for a while, it's time where the pendulum swings back. So, you know, it's um, that's where it's going to go. I agree. I think it's going to be a great time for fashion and it's going to be a great time for dressing up. Yeah, I remember like a few years ago, too, I saw a picture of Carl Icahn, you know, with with the with the with the with the three day growth stubble beard. And I thought to myself, this is like one time when everyone was doing it. And I thought this is the exact time to shave when you see a guy like this who's trophy wife or someone who said, like, you know, it's kind of cool. All the guys And like he looked like, you know. A guy from the last weekend, you know, with, with a with a five day jag of of stubble on his face, like he was a, was he was a drunk uh, walking the streets of New York. So, yeah, this is the exact time I think people go back to ties, want to look great, and I'm all for it. Well, Michael, before we release everyone to a full weekend and week ahead of them, is there anything at all you can recommend to help fill the long cold hours at home? The long, cold, final 96 hours. You know, I've been, as I told, as I mentioned briefly last week, I've been quite enjoying the Kaminsky method. <gasps> we have to talk about the Kaminsky method. Have you indulged? I've only watched seven episodes. Just just dipped in the toe there. Love it. Basically the first season. I'm um, We're almost done. Yeah, it's, I mean, look, I initially, I remember when it came out on Netflix, it didn't hold a lot of appeal for me. I was envisioning grumpier old men you know, 3.0. 
And perhaps that's just because Anne Margaret is in it. And by the way, she's fantastic. Uh, but it's nothing like that. It's just, it's a Chuck Lorre show. It's so incisively written. Alan Arkin, God Among Men, okay? And uh, Michael Douglas is really great in this. And I, I have to confess, I haven't always been, uh, you know, the first in line at the theater for a Michael Douglas film. But this is a really, it's just, you know, it's brilliantly written. It makes me happy to hear you say that. I, I mean, I'll watch Alan Arkin do anything, but I feel like this is the show that he was sort of, it, it's just such a perfect distillation of his talents. The weirdest thing for us about watching this show is that Sandy Kaminsky, in so many ways, is a dead ringer for my father-in-law. I mean, it's insane. If, if you replace like aging Los Angeles acting coach with aging San Diego tennis pro. It's great. And plus, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but you also get Jane Seymour showing up in this too. How about you? Anything to recommend, Ashley? I've just delved into a new memoir called Studying with Miss Bishop, Memoirs from a Young Writer's Life. And this is written by the poet Dana Joya, talking about uh, six of the people who helped him become a writer and understand what it means to do that. Um, four of them were famous, Elizabeth Bishop, John Cheever, James Dickey, and Robert Fitzgerald. Um, it's really, even if you're not familiar with Joya's work or his poetry, it's just a wonderful window into that period of American literary history. Highly recommend it. I'm happy to hear you say that. I saw it got a really good review. In a competitive publication, not in airmail, but yes, um, I did read that too. And that's what drew me to the book. I know. And I ripped it out too. So I'm glad now, now you'll have to give me the book. Mm -hmm. I'll be happy to loan it to you when I'm finished. <laughs> and then another book, which is sort of of a different nature. I am obsessed with Dory Greenspan all of a sudden. Do you know who she is? Yeah. So tell me why. Well, Michael, you might have noticed yesterday in the middle of our editorial meeting, I had to take a quick pause to take a cake out of the oven and flip it over quickly because it was an upside down cake and it required my immediate attention. But that's the level of obsession. I'm just going to interrupt you for a second. We're in the middle of a yeah. Zoom editorial meeting and Ashley's in her kitchen and Alexander says, what are you doing? And she's like, because she runs away from the screen, comes like, I've been making a cake. Okay. Michael, we do, we all do what we have to do for therapy. Okay. And know, for me, it's making sanity. a pear upside down spice cake and it was delicious. Alessandra was like, who's that for? And it was like, uh, myself, my daughter. Like, I don't you know. Does it always have to be for someone else? Existential question. Anyway, uh, my mom got me this book for Christmas in 2019. In other words, decades ago. And I just started cooking through it this winter. So many good recipes, so many one pot deliciousnesses. And it's kept me really occupied uh, during the lockdown. So I highly recommend it. So what are you cooking today? Uh, I'm having leftovers of the lemon fennel garlic chicken in a pot that I had right. last night. I'll be over in a few minutes. <laughs> You're more than welcome. I can always be dependent on for carbs and alcohol. Okay. Two good recommendations. All right, Michael. Well, that was the best half hour I've spent all day. What about eating cake? I've been eating cake this entire time. What are you talking about? <laughs> I have a small sliver left. Okay. Brooke made me cookies last night. Ooh, what kind? Anise seed cookies that are her mother's recipe that I love. And because I couldn't go home to Chicago this holiday season to get them, which I always get them, she made them here. And I... I eat these things like potato chips. I mean, but like, I like the, I, I ate like 12 before I went to bed last night. I was like Homer Simpson. I didn't eat them in bed. <laughs> For a small sign of progress, Michael. Exactly. She's a good woman. Yes, the best.
Should I read us out? Ugh, I guess. I, let's let's just go back and rejoin the real world. All right, Michael, go for it. All right. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis. And our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which is updated every day. Speaking of the dot world, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. And if you have any questions or comments, be sure and tweet at us. Meanwhile, you can find Ashley and myself on Instagram. We'll be here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. Most of all, thanks for joining us.